1: That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, November the 9th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Slightly different format today. We are recording a little bit earlier than usual at 8 a.m. Irish time. Although another way of looking at that is that it's pretty late for our guest, Irish Times Washington correspondent Martin Wall. Hi, Martin. Hello, Hugh. How
0: are you? It's 3 a.m. in Washington, D.C.?
1: Okay, keep drinking that coffee. Uh, Hopefully you're nearly done for the night. But anyway, the the results from the United States midterm elections, they've been coming in for the last few hours. We should caveat that they're still far from complete in many crucial contests and it may take days or even weeks, actually, to get an absolutely final tally. But just to remind listeners that uh, all the seats in the House of Representatives were up for grabs, along with one third of the Senate and a range of important governorships, along with a multiplicity of other down-ballot races and state-level votes and all kinds of issues ranging from abortion rights to the legalisation of marijuana, etc, etc, etc. But it's, it, it's a very big, it's a sometimes confusing picture. But Martin, it's fair to say, isn't it, that most experts went into this night expecting a good night for Republicans and it hasn't quite turned out that way?
0: Virtually every poll and every pundit for the last uh, two weeks were forecasting a landslide for Republicans. Now, however, there were a number, a small number of Democratic strategists who were saying, hold on, these polls are wrong. They were making allegations that Republicans were, as they say, flooding the zone with uh, dodgy polls or dodgy poll results uh, would have view to depressing uh, turnout. and And they were hoping that there was a, you know, even before we started today, 40 million people had voted as part of the early voting uh, arrangements in many states. And some democratic strategists were saying this early voting could be good for us. But the general preponderance of uh, media punditry and political punditry in in the United States was suggesting that the Republicans were on their way to a landslide. The Republicans a few months ago had been talking about a 60 seat uh, majority in the House of Representatives. And not only had they have a situation whereby... The, all the, the political winds were going in their favour. The The president's popularity is underwater. He's far more unpopular than he is popular. Inflation is running at about 8, 8.5% eight in the United States. Largely the same as it is in Ireland, but most Americans only consider inflation in their own country rather than elsewhere. And the Democrats didn't really get a, get the message across that inflation is, a, is essentially a, a worldwide problem at the moment. So the, Demo- the Republicans were going in, but also with history on their side, because virtually in recent decades, every first term president took a walloping in their first midterm elections. Um, You know, Barack Obama lost 60 seats in the House of Representatives in 2010. Donald Trump lost the House of Representatives in 2018. And in fact, a president had, hadn't won in those circumstances since George W. Bush after 9-11. So history... And the economic wins and the political punditry were all saying that Joe Biden was going to get a um, going to get a walloping this evening. However, it hasn't turned out that way. And the the Demo- Democrats who were considered to be vulnerable in both uh, House of Representative seats, in Senate races, in governors' contests, have all clung on. And the the red wave, as they called it here, the landslide that was being forecast just did not materialise. So we're, we're in a scenario now as of when we're talking now is that the Republicans are claiming that they're going to take the House of Representatives. However, their majority is going to be quite thin, going to be quite small. The Senate is still up in the air. Uh, the Democrats got a huge boost at about about 1am um, here, in uh, about 6am in Ireland, when their candidate, John Fetterman, won the crucial seat of Pennsylvania. So it now comes down to for the Senate, it comes down to what happens in Nevada, what happens in Arizona and Georgia. It's so tight that it's looking that it's going to be a runoff there because under the rules in Georgia, under the law in Georgia, if neither of the main candidates gets above 50 percent, then the top two candidates run off again on the 6th of December. So the actual final determination of the US Senate for the next two years could be a few weeks away yet.
1: So, I mean, I'm just looking at some of those numbers and, you know, some of them are are early numbers. That big win in Pennsylvania, Fetterman's win in Pennsylvania, it means that the Republicans have to win. Uh, two of those three states you mentioned, Arizona, Nevada, and and Georgia, and as you say, Georgia could take a could take a while to come through. Uh, early results really from the other two, but there's 50 percent of votes in, and they're very much in play. There are toss ups with I think in both cases the Democrats marginally ahead. One has to be careful about you know which parts of each state have have re- have returned results so far.
0: That is correct. But if the trends are going in the way they seem to be going, and if the the Democrats hold on to their seats in their Senate seats in Arizona and Nevada, well, then in the context of who controls the United States Senate, it will not matter what happens in Georgia. So if they they would obviously have an extra seat in the bag because the, the Democrats, by winning Pennsylvania, they won a seat that had been held up to now by Republicans. It was a net gain. So therefore, if they hold Arizona and Nevada, Georgia doesn't matter. And now there are internal dynamics within the Democratic Party. There was their, their senator from West Virginia, Joe Manchin, held up a lot of the Biden agenda for several months last year. His vote would become irrelevant at that point if they control, if they control the Senate um, at that point. So and again, we, we still don't know what is going to happen in the House of Representatives. There are there projections from American TV going around that it could be as low as one seat. Uh, of, a, of a Republican majority and that creates its own problems in relation for the Republicans.
1: Yeah, and we might look at that just in a moment because I know the um, the putative uh, majority leader of, of the next House, Kevin McCarthy, the Republican, if they do get their majority, uh, was speaking just in, in the last hour or so, but um, just... Just looking at the overall buildup and what you were saying earlier on about the predictions not, not coming to pass, it, it seems to me there was a kind of an ebb and flow over the course of the summer and into the autumn, both to some extent in the polls, but maybe even more so in the analysis. And maybe we paid too much attention to the pundits and not enough to the to the numbers. So you had a situation at the start of the summer where uh, Joe Biden was deep underwater. There was lots of concern about inflation and the economy. And there was still the backwash from things like the credit catastrophic exit from Afghanistan the uh, the year before. And then, in the wake of the um, of the Roe versus Wade decision in the Supreme Court, there seemed to be a kind of a backlash and the, the Democrats were doing much better uh, from August into September. But then again, those economic issues seemed to re- reassert themselves in the last six weeks, two months of the campaign. And the expectation was that these suburban voters, suburban women in particular, who uh, who were not happy with the Supreme Court decision, were perhaps going back to Republicans because of those economic issues. Maybe that was overstated in the end. It looks like that wave back against a wave against a wave
0: Yeah, you set out the history of it there quite well. And it does appear today from the exit poll data today would indicate that abortion was a bigger issue than the pundits had thought it was going to be. That they thought uh, initially after last June, when the Roe v. Wade decision was, uh, when Roe v. Wade was overturned and the federal uh, constitutional right to an abortion was uh, eliminated by the Supreme Court, that abortion was going to be a big issue. That seemed to be the case over the summer there were a number of, uh, as we call them here, by-elections, where basically Democrats ran essentially as a referendum on abortion and won. But then it seemed to fade away, or certainly the polling data seemed to suggest it faded away. And there was data that the economy was the be-all and end-all of everything and nobody really cared about anything else. Everything else was, was trailing behind. And then lo and behold, at the exit poll today, it transpires that the economy and abortion were fairly... Close together as big issues. So once that happened, and then you saw the turnout in terms of the younger people turn the the, the, the turnout of, of younger younger voters, and uh, and women voters. It seemed to be that that is where the tide was turning. That either you had people being shy and t- talking to pollsters, or else the polling strategies or the polling techniques that are used just really aren't good enough in the modern in modern uh, uh, to capture. The modern political world, um, the polls were wrong. We bear in mind about Donald Trump's victory, you know, in two thousand sixteen, and you know, when we look in, you know, in Ireland, we look the Irish Times polls that we do would have a thousand people over a population of you know four million or three, maybe three million voters. I've seen polls in the United States being of a, of a thousand and odd people across the entire country. We had polls based on. Internet polls, polls based on mobiles. And the question then was, how real were they? How how many people answer cold calls to mobile phones anymore in terms of who they are? And given the amount of money that's spent in this country on polling, given that the polls have got it wrong, it would appear to have got it wrong again, you would question their value into the future, although the polling companies no doubt will tell you we were right at the time and the people changed their minds. You know, I'm sure that would be a, their, their argument. But there's an, there, I think there is an issue going forward in relation to polling data and the reliance on polling data and the reliance on punditry based on that polling data.
1: It, that's very interesting. I mean, just before we came uh, on to record this, I was listening to the Five Thirty Eight podcast, Nate Silver, who's probably kind of the best known polling guru in the United States in terms of amassing all this data and 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 taking consequences for it. And he, of course, was uh, was was defending his position. But I think there is a real question, isn't there, because of the 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 underestimation of. Um, Republican votes in the last two presidential elections. probably many of these pollsters have been adjusting their um uh, their, the way in which they do this and they may have been adjusting too too far in the other direction so it's uh that's going to be an interesting kind of an interesting question for the future isn't it because there's so much reliance is placed on these polls so much trust is placed on them and it looks as if it's misplaced
0: the conspiracy theory on the part of the Democrats. And and certain democratic strategists who have turned out to be correct in bear in mind in in the last few hours was being their argument was now, again, as we say in relation to these conspiracy theories without any evidence being put forward. But their contention was was that this was a deliberate strategy by some Republicans that they were putting forward as uh, the the, the Democrats would claim bogus polls or, you know, uh, dodgy polls with the view to creating a narrative in the in the media. And that that would lead to people saying, well, what's the, what's the point of going out and voting anyway if they um, if it's all predetermined that there's going to be a red wave or a Republican landslide to any event? And as it transpired, that did not happen. And that there were sufficient people who were exercised by the issues of abortion that were able to overlook the issues of the economy, which is a big issue. And, you know, the cost of living is very expensive here and... Um, you know, the cost of fuel, the cost of filling your, your car is very expensive, although from an Irish perspective, it would be very, it's uh, much, much cheaper. But from an, Ar- an American perspective, it's, it's, uh, prices are, are are have increased quite significantly. And yet the public seem to have overlooked that to vote um, and overlook Joe Biden's popularity to essentially give the Democrats still, let's call it at this point, a fighting chance to holding their majority in the Senate. And it looks like it has limited the Republican majority in the House of Representatives, if it transpires to be that case, to a very slim majority.
1: another element to this which we won't know about for a while because it takes a while to, to get final figures on on it for for obvious reasons is that in a very highly polarized political system like you have now in the United States turnout is crucial and there's a there's there's generally an assumption in the midterms that turnout is lower that people are less motivated that very often the people whose president is in the white house kind of are less motivated to go to the polls and the people who are angry at the president of the White House are more motivated. But all those kinds of traditional uh, understandings of of turnout, I think have, have been turned upside down in the year of Donald Trump.
0: Yeah, I think, well, in the last, apart from the issue of abortion, which obviously the Democrats spent a lot of money trying to galvanise a base to be angry, although I'm sure a lot of people were angry anyway, but they, they tried to, you know, exacerbate that, make that position uh, a, 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 a stronger, a, a based around abortion, that people have also, I think, the last few weeks, the Democrats, have, uh, and particularly the president, has based their campaign around the future of democracy and, they, and argued that there were election deniers on the ballot. There were 300 of them around the country. People who maintained that Joe Biden was not the legitimate president, that Donald Trump was really should be president, And I think the subliminal argument, or maybe the more explicit argument, was don't worry about this election in 2022. But if these guys win, what are they going to do in 2024? That if there's a close election in 2024, will you have some people who have a role of certifying elections, refusing to certify elections, not because the, the, the person who won didn't win, but just because he didn't like the result? that they ha- had uh, had emerged from the voters. And I think that has been, would appear to have had some resonance with the public as well uh, today. So you had the issue of abortion, you had the issue of the future of democracy, uh, competing essentially with the Republican narrative, which was about um, the economy and about crime. Uh, crime was a big issue and the aim, the Republicans in many cases, sought to uh, paint their Democrat opponents as being soft on crime. Hence, we saw, for example, for example, in Pennsylvania, the uh, accusations that John Fetterman, the candidate who won the seat, that uh, they went back to his days on the parole board. And, you know, parole is a process and it goes to they seem to be arguing that he was uh, willy nilly just uh, allowing murderers and killers and uh, violent criminals just out of jail because for ideological reasons. And that was that was also resonating on the doorsteps as well. And in, in Pennsylvania I was there uh two, two, three weeks ago, and canvassers were saying that that was people were saying this Fetterman guy wants to let all the criminals out of jail, you know, that so it was uh, resonating. But I think that the that the issue of um democracy, the issue of abortion, has, if we pardon the pun, trumped the arguments over the economy and crime by the Republicans.
1: Yeah, and I think you can see that in places like Wisconsin, for example, where the Democratic governor held on and where actually there's still quite a tight contest going on, although the Republicans are likely to hold on to the, the Senate seat there. So I think both abortion and these kind of Democratic issues are are, are are at play in Wisconsin.
0: You mentioned there, Hugh, and we probably should allude to it at this point, there were three governor races in the, the Midwest, essentially uh, Michigan being um, and Wisconsin being two of two of them and the fear there was i think from very high level democratic strategists were that if they lost out they have republican legislatures and democratic uh, governors that if they lost out today and you had a republican governor the legislature would pass very significant voting restrictions over the next uh, 12 months leading up to the elections in twenty twenty four. You could have, for example, the suggestions whereby that for mail-in ballots they would have to be notarized. You have to go to a public notary to prove who you were before you did that, and obviously that would be seen to be suppressing the vote. But the the re-election of these Democratic governors in those Midwest states means that those any such restri- any such restrictions being proposed by the legislature could be vetoed. So it's a very important issue. Those governor uh, elections this evening will be very very important for the Democratic. Uh, a political establishment as we
1: move into 2024. And then turning to the House of Representatives, if the Republican anticipation was of a relatively comfortable majority, let's say, you know, 25, 30 seats, something of that sort. And if it turns out to be, as I think, you know, the early days again, we're not sure, but, you know, if we think it might be just very low double digits, 10 to 15 or something. That puts the uh, Republican leadership, as you say, at the mercy of, I think, what we can fairly and objectively and empirically call the crazy wing of the Republican Party, the Christian nationalists, the Marjorie Taylor Greens of this world, which could be really chaotic and and also project a, a very negative image of the Republicans to the American electorate over the next two years.
0: Plus, they would more than likely spend their time on the phone to Donald Trump and asking Trump what he wanted them to do for every particular issue that came along, it would produce. And as we have seen, uh Trump has not proven to be the most adroit political strategist over the last number of years. You know, Trump won in 2016, that's absolutely true. He lost the House in 2018. He lost election in 2020. And his uh actions in 2020, particularly in Georgia, where he in- basically discouraged his own supporters from voting in the runoff election, lost the Republicans, the majority in the Senate. So um, does Trump, be, if this wing, this uh, more extreme, the MAGA wing of the, of the House of Representatives, um, in cahoots with Trump, would cause quite significant difficulties for the Republican leadership into the future? And particularly, the, as you said, the putative speaker, Kevin McCarthy, as to where that where that goes and what his proposals and plans are, so that's it would make life very very difficult for Kevin McCarthy in fact, it could make life so difficult that McCarthy's ambition of being speaker in itself would depend on. These the the mega wing of the Republican Party voting for him, given that the numbers are so tight. If the numbers, if he had, you know, before the abortion referendum, before the abortion issue of the Supreme Court last June, Republicans were talking about a majority of sixty seats. So, which would have given him uh, McCarthy the room to basically tell the extreme wing to get lost if he were causing him problems. Now he needs them, so there. It's a very, um, it's a very delicate balance. We're going to see on the Republican side, if the numbers are as tight, ultimately, as we believe they may be, with all the health warnings and provisos that cancer is still going on.
1: So there are two parts of the United States that were definitely party spots for the Republicans last night. They they picked up some seats in uh, in New York State, and they did extremely well in Florida. And I think the second one of those is particularly significant because... Uh, alongside those those gains in the house in Florida, um, the governor Ron DeSantis uh, romped home with a very very comfortable majority. Florida now seems to be established as a red state, whereas it it was generally seen as a battleground state for the for for the the past several decades, and that I think will in many quarters, particularly in the Republican Party, be seen as Ron DeSantis' achievement. Things are shaping up more and more as a DeSantis versus Trump contest to run for president for the Republicans. And this was a good night for DeSantis and a bad night for Trump, it seems to me.
0: Yeah, the the, the big winner out of these midterm elections, apart from Joe Biden, who obviously will be quite happy, where they was Ron DeSantis. Four years ago, when Ron DeSantis became governor, he won by about 30,000 votes. He won today by an excess of 1.6 million. He crushed his opponent. In addition, um, the constituency maps in Florida had been redrawn and to the advantage of the Republicans pushed through by DeSantis. And as part of that, uh, on foot of that uh, redistricting, as they call it here, the Republicans won four additional seats. So if it comes down to a very, very tight majority in the House of Representatives, it will be based around what DeSantis did, his own win, his um, he managed to break down the barriers and big, uh, previously uh, impenetrable democratic strongholds around Miami. He built inroads into the Hispanic vote, uh, a larger inroads into the Hispanic vote, and He is seen, will be seen as basically his argument if he runs or wants to run in 2024, that he has the ability to put together a coalition that can win. Trump obviously recognises this. Uh, Trump announced, essentially announced uh, yesterday, that he's going to make his formal, throwing his hat into the ring for 2024 next Tuesday in Mar-a-Lago. And he basically warned DeSantis today not to basically step on his parade and to stay out of the presidential race. And he warned that he had information that would be very unflattering to DeSantis, which he would disseminate if DeSantis decides to run. So, and then obviously we had the, you know, the 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 the, 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 the rite of passage of Trump receiving a nickname from Trump uh, last weekend where he described, he was talking about Ron DeSanctimonious. So... There is obviously a, there's tensions there. I think Trump wants to announce his candidacy for the for the presidency next week and then give himself four or five months to run up a really big score among the Republican base to frighten off everybody else. DeSantis could, as I say, reign in that parade. And I think he's trying to warn him off from that. But DeSantis winning in Florida in such a manner is sending a message to the Republican establishment around the United States that he is the coming man and he can put together a coalition that could win across the country. And it remains to be seen where that goes. But I would watch that space, uh, that DeSantis-Trump rivalry over the coming months.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, listening to voices from the Republican establishment, they definitely want DeSantis to win. I mean, it's it, it goes beyond ideology. They think that he can win for them and they don't believe Trump can win for him. And, and, and you know, that argument is bolstered by certainly some trump nominated candidates uh, were victorious last night, but many weren't, particularly some of the more outre Trumpist ones, you know, uh, like the gubernatorial candidate Kerry Lake or Doug Mastriano in uh, uh, in in Pennsylvania. So, you know, this is another, as you said earlier, this is another um, example of the increasing amount of evidence that Trump may be still the darling of the Republican Party, but he can't win elections for them.
0: Yeah, the interesting, Trump did an interview today where he said that if his um, proteges, let's call them, won, all the credit would be for him, but if they lost, it would be, be their own fault. And he wasn't taking any responsibility for it. The interesting part, I think, we've we seen, okay, he supported J.D. Vance in Ohio. Vance beat Tim Ryan after a very tough fight. Interesting about Ohio, uh, Tim Ryan was so strong that it forced the Republican establishment to invest $30 million behind Vance to get him over the line. That's $30 million, and in other circumstances would have went to Colorado, would have went to Arizona, where there were better chances of unseating serving Democrats. Vance won, obviously, was a Trump, Trump-supported Trump candidate. Uh, Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania lost. Uh, the Republican establishment never wanted uh, Oz. They wanted a um, a hedge fund manager. It was, would have been far more... Um, Establishment, uh a, a, a person to run, but lost out because Trump supported Oz. Obviously, there's the issue of the Herschel Walker situation in Georgia, the Republican establishment did not want Walker to win, but Walker was backed by Trump. And the key issue will be Arizona. Now, as we are recording this, the all of the Republican candidates in Arizona, the from governor down, all of the and Arizona is a case in point of its own because. All of the, virtually all of the people are election deniers on the on the top of the ticket. They're all running behind their Democrat opponents at this point. Particularly, you know, Trump has particularly embraced Kerry uh, Lake, the l- lady who's running for uh, governor, and she has embraced Trumpism. She described herself as Trump in a dress, and there were speculation that if Trump won and she won, that she could be a vice presidential um, Trump's vice presidential candidate in two years' time. If she loses, it shows that the Trump that Im- that no matter how you embrace Trump, it may not necessarily be a, a a ticket to victory. So that's as I say the the message to the Republican establishment from these elections. If if Arizona goes the way the trends are going, and it may or may not at this point, is is that Trump doesn't
1: guarantee you that you're going to win. Although if we've learned any anything over the last few years, it's that the Republican establishment doesn't control the Republican Party.
0: That is correct. They and. You know, we've seen that in the UK as well that the the, the grassroots te- can dictate to the to the um, to the leadership, and I don't think Trump will go down without a fight. So we could have some fireworks in the weeks ahead, depending on how. And the other interesting part is, as of yesterday, only only, only yesterday and this morning, even before the election was started, there was finger pointing going on within the Democratic uh, establishment over who was responsible for this uh, landslide defeat that they were expecting to face tonight. You're already beginning to see on American television, um, you know, they, as I say, the finger pointing in the, within the Republican establishment as to what went wrong. Why did they not win? They had everything. They, all the wins were in their favor. And why did they not? Was it the candidates? Was it the election strategy? What went wrong? Because I don't think they will ever have, or, you know, never have, but they will. the The stars were aligning for them to have a complete landslide across the board. And it just hasn't materialized. It not, you know. People were saying, "Is it going to be a red wave? Is it going to be a red ripple?" That doesn't seem to be red anything. It doesn't seem that just doesn't have seem to have happened in any way. And tonight was not the night that they were anticipating. And you know, w- there were scenes on American television earlier on of what should have been parties and ballrooms and whatever in hotel ballrooms. They were empty. You know, there was there was nothing there. There was nobody. There was no um, celebrations.
1: Yeah, it's reminiscent of the big Clinton uh, victory party in, in New York in, in 2016. A last question, actually, speaking of the Democratic Party. If the red wave had happened last night and people would undoubtedly have associated with it with the current unpopularity of Joe Biden, I think it probably would have been a nail in the coffin of Joe Biden running for president for a second time um, in 2024. But now that's all changed as well, hasn't it? And uh, Biden looks better positioned.
0: It certainly, it certainly makes him look in a better position. And the other part would be is that we don't know whether the economy be better in 2024. We hope it will be in terms of... it. So it will come down, I suspect, to Biden has said he intends to run. It will depend on his health, I would suspect, at the time, uh, two years down the way. <clears throat> in many ways, it may also, I think, depend on, is Trump going to run? Because I think Biden believes that he is the only candidate on the Democratic side... Who could defeat Trump? If Trump doesn't get the nomination, if Trump doesn't run or Trump is ejected from the Republican uh, Party or the Republican uh, race uh, in 2024, m- maybe that imperative may not be there. Uh, it depends. There's a, but he's certainly Biden is certainly, is certainly a stronger position tonight than he was with, before polling opened this morning. Uh, as he got off his helicopter in uh, the White House after coming back from his final rally on Monday night, he was asked what he thought. He said, I'm optimistic. And then he added the rider, but I'm always optimistic, which sounded like a little bit of hedging your bets. And he was then asked, said what would happen if Republicans won? And he said it would be very difficult or more difficult. Now, we have to bear in mind, and, you know, it is a good night for Democrats. They've held the tide back as much as they can. Even a Republican victory in the House of three, four, five seats, whatever it may be, will have posed challenges. There's going to be a lot of investigations. that The Republicans will still control the committees that will investigate. You'll hear an awful lot about Hunter Biden and his business dealings and his laptop and all the rest of it. You're going to hear a lot about, um, you know, the withdrawal, from, the chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan. We're going to hear a lot about COVID and how uh, uh, the origins of COVID and the role of Anthony Fauci, who's a, become a hate figure for some on the right in relation to lockdowns. You'll see a lot of that. And perhaps more importantly, from an international point of view, the issue of Ukraine and the funding of the Ukrainian government by the Biden administration to the tune of billions and billions of dollars of arms and financial support. The Republicans, although they are divided among themselves, seem to be taking a more sceptical view of that and certainly talking about not offering uh, the uh, Biden a blank cheque to give to Ukraine. So there could be a lot of um, issues there. Uh, What would happen, for example, if the Republicans say we will agree to fund Ukraine, but in return for a cut in funding for Social Security or Medicare in the United States? Very interesting to dilemmas for uh, the president one way or the other. So a good night for him. But there's a lot of challenges still ahead. Indeed,
1: there is, and we'll continue to cover it. Martin, thanks very much for joining us and make sure you get some sleep now. And that's it for today. Thanks indeed very much to Martin for staying up so late and to our producer, Suzanne Brennan, for getting up so early and also to our engineer, JJ Vernon. We'll be back very soon with the next podcast from the Inside Politics team. Uh, But until then, goodbye and thanks very much for listening.